Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Tuesday, November 21st, three-day work week. Tomorrow's my last day of working for the week. Can't complain about that very much. You know, Thanksgiving, just the typical stuff, lots of food, gonna do a run, podcast, I don't know, that's pretty much gonna be it. But anyways, a lot of things, actually not that many things, but a few things I want to talk about today. I want to give some updates on what's going on in Israel and share my thoughts on that, and China now trying to lead some sort of a peace talk of some forms. I also want to talk about Nikki Haley. She is surging. But I think the people that want her, basically, I've seen people play out scenarios where they're like, oh, there's a way if she takes Iowa in second place and then gets second in New Hampshire and then goes into Nevada and South Carolina, maybe, maybe she can finally get in there by Super Tuesday and beat Trump if she has the fundraising. I think it's a fantasy. I don't think anyone can beat Trump as long as he is running and the Colt is around him and just the the cult of public opinion is following him. So I want to talk about that because obviously a lot of centrist types like myself want her, like she's a much better option than Trump. But if people like me are saying that she should be the nominee, probably not going to be the nominee. So we'll talk about that. But first I want to talk about Ron DeSantis. And so last week I talked about Elon Musk re-Xing, or as David Pakman calls him, excretions, so re-excreting, some very anti-Semitic comments that basically touted the Great Replacement Theory, that the Jews are pulling the strings to send non-white immigrants into the West to get rid of the white race. Just awful stuff, scummy stuff. And companies like Apple are pulling out of X now. Yeah, this was the final straw for a lot of people. And It is interesting to me because the right has really come down on anti-Semitism on the left, and rightfully so in times, obviously, with these Hamas protesters that are saying they were freedom fighters and the Jews are hipsters and the Israelis killed were hipsters. Obviously, you should crack down on them, but they're the ones that want to pass laws to limit speech on college campuses. They want to cancel these kids forever. Maybe not the best way to go about it. We've kind of seen a civil war on the right about that. You have like Megyn Kelly types saying these kids should never work. Other people like Vivek Ramaswamy and Candace Owens saying just because they said something stupid in college doesn't mean they should be silenced for the rest of their lives. Weirdly enough, I'm actually on the (laughs) Vivek Ramaswamy and Candace Owens side of that. Probably the only time I will ever say that. But I, I do think a lot of these kids don't really know what they're saying. They're just joining social movements in college and like to be part of a movement. And there's a lot of kids with stupid ideas in college. But anyways, Ron DeSantis has passed legislation in Florida. He is not only combating woke, as he always says, but he is also trying to limit free speech on campuses and punish people that basically speak out against Israel. And some of them do deserve punishment for some of the anti-Semitic comments, I think. But I don't really want to go down that road either because that means we're limiting free speech, which Ron DeSantis, as we know, he likes to protect speech when it's on the right and does not care about protecting speech when his opponents use it. It's, of course, just the lovely contradictions of the modern American right. But anyways, he was on Jake Tapper's CNN, not Jake Tapper's CNN, Jake Tapper's show on CNN, and he basically asked asked, asked, um, Ron DeSantis about Elon Musk's tweet or retweet, 
And Ron DeSantis couldn't disavow Elon Musk's basically anti-Semitic comments and back, you know, and record down the years and all of that. And I think it just shows the contradictions of Ron DeSantis and how weak he is. So why don't I play a little bit of that? And then I'll give you some more thoughts on the other side. But this, this again, just shows me why this is not a powerful guy. I will just say before we play this one more thing, Donald Trump and Elon Musk don't really totally get along. They've had kind of a war of words over the years, a lot of clashing. If, if I was Donald Trump or one of his advisors, I would say condemn Elon Musk and say, no, these type of comments are bad. It would make you look strong. It would make you look like the alpha. And since there is a big right wing rallying against Palestine and Hamas and support for Israel is growing on the right, Trump would look good coming out and doing that. I'm surprised he hasn't because Ron DeSantis is just playing the idiot in this. Anyways, I'll play the clip. I think Tapper does a good job of pressing him. And Ron DeSantis just looks uncomfortable as always and now is getting backlash for this and rightfully so. Never happens again. Something happened the other day that uh, I wondered what you thought about because you launched your campaign on Twitter, now known as X. And right now, major companies such as Apple and Disney are pulling their ads from X because Elon Musk uh, openly endorsed this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory uh, that Jews uh, are conspiring to replace white Americans with minority immigrants. Um, I wondered if you saw the comment and if you could... Basically, the great, rep- uh, great replacement theory. Emmett. Uh, I did not see the comment, um, and so I know that Elon has had a target on his back ever since he purchased Twitter, uh, because I think he's taking it in a direction that a lot of people um, who are used to controlling the narrative don't like. Uh, So uh, I was a big supporter of him purchasing Twitter. Uh, I think they're obviously still working some stuff out, but I... (laughs) Working some stuff out, yeah, losing billions. Anyways. Did not see those comments. All right, well, let me just show you. So here's a post claiming that Jews are pushing uh, dialectical hatred against whites and are flooding the country with hordes of minorities. And Elon Musk replies, you have said the actual uh, truth. Um, he goes. So now, so now Rob DeSanctis can't say he hasn't seen it because it's up on the screen and Jake Tapper's reading it for him. So it's kind of hard, you know, to say you haven't seen it at this point. And to say that he's talking about uh, the ADL and other Jewish groups are, are pushing uh, replacements uh, of, of whites. Uh, it's a lot of condemnation for singling out a specific religious group during this time of rapidly rising uh, anti-Semitism. I know you're very, uh, you've been very upfront when you see anti-Semitism on the left. Um, by, by the way, DeSantis looks like he's eaten some bad oysters after this questioning. He just looks unwell and uncomfortable and like he's going to just... Yeah, we'll throw up all over. Is anti-Semitism on the right something that concerns you as well? Across the board. And and actually, I think in the advent of these attacks, the amount of anti-Semitism that we've seen has really uh, surprised me. And I'm somebody that signed major legislation in Florida to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. And yet what you've seen come out... Anyways, we'll stop it. But what he wants to do is he wants to weaponize government to stop any free speech that they may deem as anti-Semitism. And the, I, the irony is that his buddy Elon Musk that he launched his campaign on X with has put out a blatantly anti-Semitic great replacement theory tweet, or at least retweeted it. And 
he seems to be fine with that. Ron DeSantis is weak, guys. He's weak. And and the funny thing is, is that Tapper was even trying to get DeSantis out of this. He was trying to help the guy out, showing him the tweet when DeSantis said he'd never seen it before. And DeSantis just shows time and time again to me how bad of a politician he is. But then as I say that, you also have to wonder, well, there's a lot of other people on the right that are going to defend Elon and they're going to blame Media Matters for this. And actually, Elon is doing that right now. He is putting forth a lawsuit against Media Matters, calling it a hit job and blaming them for his sponsors quickly leaving X after this recent round of anti-Semitism. And the thing is, is that you can blame Media Matters for conjuring up this story, but there wouldn't be much of a story if Musk didn't retweet basically a great replacement theory tweet, right? And... It, to me, just shows it's the perfect poster child for Twitter X just becoming quite a right-wing organization and quite a cesspool for just bad speech. And it was Will Salatin who works with the uh, Bulwark right now, and he was on the Bulwark podcast yesterday, and he was talking about how it does seem like X has actually just become the new truth social And I I really can't disagree with that much. So anyways, Ron DeSantis is weak. And I think this is actually a good segue to talk about the Republicans running against Trump in the primaries. So a little background before I get into Nikki Haley and I guess Rob DeSantis a little bit, who's doing poorly. Basically, the presidential nomination in in the Republican Party takes place in three stages. And right now, we're kind of towards the end of the first stage, which a lot of people called the invisible primary. And this lasts from like the spring of 2023 until the first votes are cast. And Trump is obviously the front runner right now, and he is doing quite well. And he's cultivating his base. He is not trying to really reach out to new to new um, groups or new voters. Right now, he is just trying to make sure that he can do well in primaries because Brookings had a good piece I was reading yesterday that was talking about how basically national polls can be kind of useful, but the polls you really want to look at right now are the ones out of Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina because those are going to be the first early caucuses and primaries to give us an idea of who is doing well And so Trump is doing obviously well in all of those, but he is focused on the invisible primary, which is leading up to his first ones. And the Iowa caucus obviously is the first one. So anyways, moving on to stage two of the process, these are the early primaries. They go from late January, 2024 to March, 2024. And that's the day before the super Tuesday, which is a big national primary chaos where you really get to know who, the nominee is probably going to be by then. And so anyways, the early primary stage on the Republican side is kind of stage two of this entire election process. And this includes Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. These four states have few delegates, which is kind of funny. Brookings writes here in quotes, in fact, out of the approximately 1,234 delegates, someone will need to win the Republican nomination These states in total only account for 138 delegates or just 11% of the total needed to win, which I always find kind of funny, but whether you like that or not, you need to do well in these. And so interestingly, during this period of time, I think Trump could be most at risk. We will get to that later when I talk about Nikki Haley, but 
Basically, a lot of people think this could be the only time that maybe there could be a coup inside of the Republican Party to try to stop Trump. Anyways, the third stage is the nominating process. And basically, this is a three-month race for delegates. And this is where the candidates have to be able to compete in basically 46 states with different uh, processes, different systems, different ways to get delegates. And so this is the time where the best politician really seems to win or the person with the biggest following, the most money, the best form of retail politics, retail campaigning, and just just campaign funds and momentum. And so this is where I I think by the time you get to the third stage, it's probably going to be pretty unlikely that you see a big shakeup. So anyways, that's where we're at. We are in the end of the first stage, and I, I would argue things are getting fairly interesting. So, and what I mean here is that Nikki Haley is slowly but surely kind of becoming the top tier of the second tier. What I mean is that she is still, pretty much in every poll I've seen, at least 30 points behind Trump. And as I mentioned earlier, it depends on the state and it depends how you look at it. But even though Trump remains in control, Nikki Haley seems to be probably the best alternative to Trump. And I've talked about it before. Like, if I had to vote for a Republican tomorrow, she would absolutely be the one I would go with just because she has good policies on Ukraine. And she's she kind of believes in elections and she's a moderate. And again, I probably still wouldn't vote for her. I think she shape shape shifts too much. And she's also said that Trump was the right president at the right time. And she also wants to get rid of anonymous accounts on the internet, on social media, which I highly disagree with. I think anonymity is really important for the internet. I think we should find a way to verify accounts without compromising their identity. And I don't know. I don't I don't like everything she does, but I don't think the world would be a crazy flaming shit show if she were president. Anyways, this is not about why I like Nikki Haley, but it's about the dynamics. So anyways... BBC writes here in quotes, one poll last week by Iowa State University found that 54% of likely caucus goers picked Mr. Trump as their top choice, compared with 18% for Governor DeSantis, 12% for Miss Haley, and 6% for biotech millionaire Vivek the fake Ramaswamy. I made up the last board. But anyways, she this poll doesn't have her doing well, but we have to remember there was a time when she was at like 1% or 2%, and now she's up to 12%. Ron DeSantis is tanking. In New Hampshire, she's in second. South Carolina, she's in second. I'll look at the next page of my notes here to see. I think in Nevada, she's also in second. Basically, she is passing Ron DeSantis as a better alternative to Trump, or at least the alternative to Trump. And, you know, her and her and Chris Christie, I think, kind of dance inside of the same lane. Pro-Ukraine, pro-democracy more neoliberal slash neoconservative, more kind of your traditional Republican. And she obviously is showing that she is doing better than he is. So anyways, I think I think there's a lot of interesting scenarios that could play out. So earlier I talked about how the second phase of kind of the primary GOP election cycle for president involves those early four primaries. And There's a lot of people thinking that maybe Nikki Haley could at least disrupt Trump or become some sort of a spoiler. What I mean here is that Tim Scott dropped out. 
I think in New Hampshire it is. She's about 20%, even up to 22%, depending on the polls you look at. If you add in some of Tim Scott, who the polls haven't accounted for yet, and then say Chris Christie eventually drops out, she could move up to where Trump has like 52%, and she has like 38 Obviously, she's still losing, but it's enough to bring her in where maybe it's just her versus Trump instead of like 15 others still in the race. And the interesting thing here is that basically the Republicans, I think what I mean is like the Republican apparatus, some of the candidates, they're kind of playing out two different scenarios. Of course, you have like the 2016 scenario where as many candidates as possible stayed in. Even towards the end, you still had John Kasich and Ted Cruz. I think Ted Cruz it was won Iowa. Obviously, that did not bode well for him. Marco Rubio also stayed in quite late. So you have that scenario of 2016. But then you also have the 2020 scenario where basically everyone drops out except for Bernie. And then Biden easily beats Bernie around Super Tuesday, goes on to become the nominee. I personally think that two people against each other at this point would be better. I truly do believe that. So anyways, let's go down a little bit further into some of the scenarios. So right now, I think, as I've said earlier, national polls are limited in their ability to actually be predictive of what's coming next. So early state polls are interesting. And we do have some information out in Iowa which holds its caucus January 15th, New Hampshire, which holds its primary on January 23rd, Nevada on February 8th, and South Carolina on February 24th. And so in Iowa, for example, like I said, DeSantis doing better than Nikki Haley in Iowa, and that's pretty understandable just because Governor Reynolds has endorsed DeSantis Trump, obviously, 54% to DeSantis's 18%, so not exactly a close one, 36-point differential, Nikki Haley, 12%. But it gets more interesting when you look at, here I have it in front of me, New Hampshire. Nikki Haley surpassed DeSantis last month, according to Brookings, and Chris Christie and DeSantis are in a closer third which makes sense to me. And I think Chris Sununu, governor of, yeah, the governor of New Hampshire, he's going to be an interesting piece in all of this because we have to remember, I guess I would say he falls kind of in between Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. He has said he prefers someone other than Trump. He's been vocally against Trump at times, but then he's also said he would vote for the Republican candidate, kind of playing coy with that messaging. But I think if his if if he came out before New Hampshire and endorsed Nikki Haley, that could do a lot. And also we have to remember that Chris Christie is still in the race. I'm just going to say, <laughs> Chris Christie is despised by the MAGA base. The fact that I like him now, the bulwark likes him, CNN brings him on, this is a guy who is the kind of never Trump centrist side of this. So Nikki Haley needs him to drop out. My issue with Chris Christie is that, yeah, he's been a formidable force. He's calling out Trump in a myriad of different ways. Like just a few days ago, he was talking about how the Republicans cannot criticize Iran and Putin and Hamas 
when also defending our own authoritarian values that are coming up right now. And I think that is something interesting. Like Chris Christie has been a good voice in this, but he's going nowhere and I'm worried that he wants to stay in for his own gain. He needs to drop out. Going further, Nikki Haley in South Carolina has a lead over DeSantis as well. 538 projects that. And she's been at the number two slot actually since September. And so Nevada, I've seen less polling on. But if you look at Iowa, Nikki Haley just needs to do okay in Iowa. She needs to get second in New Hampshire and maybe get like 30% if possible. And that would take Chris Christie dropping out. And I hope he understands this at this point. He needs to drop out, endorse Nikki Haley, and then Chris Sununu also needs to endorse her. And then South Carolina, her home state, Trump is also popular there. But Tim Scott obviously dropped out. I would imagine maybe 60-40, like 60% of his voters go to her, 40% go to Trump. It could be vice versa as well, but something like that. And so I guess the end of this is that her fortunes are going in the correct direction, more or less. And she has increased a lot of publicity after the debates. She has placed third after, you know, there was a time when people said she had zero to just zero to no chance of ever being even close to this. And now she's finished, according to Brookings, she finished last, uh, sorry, last quarter's fundraising with as much cash on hand as DeSantis. And we, and we have to remember that he raised a shit ton of cash at the beginning. So... I think Brookings sums this up pretty well, though. It says, If she gets the endorsement of Governor uh, Sununu in the New Hampshire primary, it might help turnout among non-Trump Republicans and Republicans leaning into, sorry, and Republican leaning independents. If some other candidates drop out and endorse her, it could help her win her home state of, of South Carolina or at least come close to Trump. And then the article kind of gets into... Maybe she can raise a lot of cold, hard cash, and as long as she doesn't do poorly in the December debate, maybe she can come out and at least come into a close second. And maybe at this time, you see it being Trump versus Haley when Super Tuesday comes around, which is kind of into the third phase, which is the actual primary season. And this would kind of be the Biden-Bernie situation instead of the trump Rubio, Kasich, Cruz scenario that we saw in 2016. Does it work? I'm not 100% sure it does. My first criticism would be that if DeSantis drops out, the reason why DeSantis is not doing well is because most of his base likes him but prefers Trump. So if there's any remaining people voting for DeSantis, my assumption would be that they go to Trump. If Vivek uh, drops out, his base also goes directly to Trump. I just feel like there is more of a Trump wing right now than there is the Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, that wing. You know what I mean? And I guess also there just are a lot of factors at play. Like I've heard this dream scenario played out. Sarah Longwell talks about it in her focus groups that are coordinated through the bulwark. That's where they publicize these a lot. But a lot would need to go well. She needs to do well enough in Iowa, which would mean that Christie drops out after this. 
and his voters go to her. She would need to get Tim Scott voters. Then she needs to go to New Hampshire and count on endorsements from Sununu and then also come in second and maybe a closer second than she can actually do. And in South Carolina, it could be interesting. Nevada, Trump is very popular amongst Republicans. Nikki Haley is not, at least from my anecdotal experience living in Nevada and talking to Republicans and just seeing the signs on my drives and the bumper stickers, etc. It's all, I, I guess my issue is that all of this is resting on a lot going right for Nikki Haley. I guess the, the part that also makes this a fantasy to me and it's kind of troubling. Let's just say that Nikki is able to either last this out or ride on Trump maybe getting indicted. I just worry that if there's any other candidate who is close to Trump or actually dethrones him in a primary, Trump has 30 to 40 percent. Well, I would say closer to 30 percent of the Republican vote. He can weaponize them. He will turn his va- his base. Jeez, I can't speak. He will turn his base against this candidate and make their life hell. They will get death threats. All of the attacks will go towards her. Trump was focusing on DeSantis and Chris Christie. With them out in this hypothetical scenario, he focuses on her. And then say she actually does dethrone him in this hypothetical scenario. He just runs as a third party. And his 30% of the base that goes with him is enough to make sure that the Republicans don't win. And the irony here is that I think a Nikki Haley, at least from the polling I've seen from 538, the AP, the Economist, the Atlantic, they all talk about how Nikki Haley actually does better against Biden than Trump does. Now, that was a few months ago. Trump's, Trump now still does well against Biden, no matter what. It's just the reality of the situation. But let's just say Nikki Haley's the nominee. <laughs> He will, again, run as a third party, take away that 30%. He will also call it stolen, rigged. He will claim the Republican Party for, you know, stealing his nomination to the Republican presidential nominee. He will spend all day ruining her credibility. And it just seems to me that no other candidate really wants to go down this road. And it seems like there can't be another candidate until Trump goes away. It just seems like Trump right now is the Republican Party, and you can put out these fantasies and these hypothetical scenarios, but at the end of the day, he is still at over 50% in every poll I've seen. And also, even if she does well enough, she will be attacked and demonized by the other side and by the Trump side as well. And it just seems like if you're a, like if you're a rational candidate who actually wants to become the nominee, I think you drop out and wait it out. That's not what I want. I want anyone but Trump. Maybe maybe not DeSantis, but you catch my drift. And, and the thing is, is I just don't think that's a reality until Trump is out of the picture. And Trump has proven to be versatile and a survivor. Yeah, he seems older. He constantly claims Obama's president and Viktor Orban's the president of Turkey. And clearly he is getting old. It's not lost on any of us that follow him. But I think Trump runs in 2028. I think Trump remains as long as possible. I think I think this is just a, a losing battle for anyone that goes against Trump. And that's why I think the Nikki Haley fantasy is real. I think a lot of centrists hope that she has a chance and they play out the scenarios. It's kind of like me. Last season, Aaron Rodgers last year, quarterback for the Packers. 
it was like they started off horribly. They had a few good games. They beat the Cowboys in overtime, looked okay. And I'm like, okay, so the Packers are the third in the hunt team for a wild card position. And I'm going, well, if they beat the Lions in the last week of the season and the Seahawks lose and the Niners beat the Rams or whatever it was, then the Packers can maybe slip in. But if they slip in, then they have to go to San Francisco, beat one of the best teams in the NFC, and then from there they would have to play the Eagles and blah, blah, blah. And that didn't happen because some of these scenarios are just not realistic and very difficult because when you are the outsider who's fighting a losing battle, it's hard to get that much momentum, even if you have a little bit. And we also have to remember that Nikki Haley could just be a momentary... A, a momentary reaction to the Trump side. She did really well in the first debate. She's done less well in the following debates. Who knows? Who knows if in a few months people are still talking about her. I do think she will do well in the primaries, but again, I don't think she'll do well enough to appease some of us that hope she could be the nominee. Moving on before we're out of here, uh, there have been some interesting revelations in the, the war in Gaza. So, so basically, there have been conversations for quite some time, for several weeks now, between the Netanyahu government, the Likud government, and Joe Biden's administration about making some sort of deal to get hostages out of there. And Hamas has gone dark several times after putting out requirements and then stepping back on them. And over the last like 24 to 48 hours, we've received more and more information about a potential hostage deal. Now, CNN says in quotes here, and this is happening in the last couple hours, Israel's cabinet, in quotes, has approved a deal for the release of hostages seized by Hamas in exchange for a pause in fighting in Gaza. Going into more detail, apparently this agreement is going to release at least 50 hostages, women and children, and Hamas is asking for a four-day truce in Israel's air and ground campaign according to the Israeli government, and I guess they've accepted it as of now. 150 Palestinian prisoners are also going to be released from Israeli jails as part of the agreement. And this is, I mean, it's a step. Antony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, he said in quotes um, from a CNN article, on Tuesday night that the hostage deal between Israel and Hamas marks significant progress but Blinken also vowed we will not rest as long as Hamas continues to hold hostages in Gaza. And I think people should also add about the quite brutal bombings here that are going on as well. And we are seeing more and more calls for at least some sort of so, some sort of stoppage in just the massive destruction going on, especially now in southern parts of Gaza, which people were told to go to. And now there's also attacks there. We'll probably talk about this in a day or two as we see what's actually going on. But one thing I will say is this shows that the Israeli government does want to get these hostages out of there because a lot of like a lot of talking points I've heard online and on different podcasts and on the news on more left left leaning sources have been that Israel is kind of okay with holding up the release of hostages because it gives them an incentive to keep this indiscriminate bombing campaign and to keep colonizing, as some of them say, parts of Gaza. I'm seeing 50 Israelis being released for 150 Palestinian prisoners as a sign that the Israeli government cares deeply about every one of their people that's out, and they want to do something about this. 
Also a four-day truce, a four-day ceasefire in terms of air and ground campaigns is pretty big. When Hamas has said they would not potentially honor this, at least in what they've said, what they've said in interviews down the road or in previous interviews, and how they've said that, that October 7th was just the beginning. This does tell me that Israel does put a high value on getting its hostages out. And of course, I do think Netanyahu's government kind of needs this because I have read just a consistent amount of reports that talk about how, yeah, Israel's mobilized against Hamas and supports the war, but a lot of people still despise Netanyahu and they know that his time is limited once this is over. So anyway, we're in an interesting point here where you have almost 2 million people displaced in Gaza. 50% of buildings, according to the UN, in northern Gaza have been damaged. And satellite imagery and data seem to back that up. But we are looking at the release of hostages. And I think this is a big step. And as Antony Blinken said, this is significant progress. Now, another thing I turn to before we're out of here is that Xi Jinping, back from you know his meeting with Biden in San Francisco, he is now, according to The Economist, calling for an international peace conference to resolve the conflict to resolve the war between Israel and Hamas. And this was a meeting between the BRICS, which is an economic bloc. BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And they are also talking about bringing in Iran and Saudi Arabia. And Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, has accused Israel again of genocide in Gaza. What I will say here is I like the idea of a peace summit. BRICS to me is not a good actor here. And this is the thing I always tell my friends. I always say I think Israel needs to calm down the bombings. I think most people do. Seeing children dying is just abhorrent and unacceptable. But when you see Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa as the ones that are condemning Israel and trying to hold this peace summit and they're also bringing Iran potentially and Saudi Arabia into the mix. I don't see this as a group that actually genuinely probably wants peace. They have ulterior motives here. And these are countries, I mean, Russia and Brazil, well, well Brazil, under Lula, Lula doesn't believe that we should be any what involved in what's happening in Ukraine. And Brazil and Russia are both part of this group. Hmm. India, huge crackdown on human rights against minority communities, against Muslims. China, I don't have to go too far. And of course, you have South Africa, where you had some of the most violent protests in recent history there, and a lot of corruption charges amongst Ramaphosa's own party in South Africa. And of course, Saudi Arabia and Iran. I've talked enough about that for you guys to understand this. So I like the idea of peace talks. I'm not sure if I feel too great about these being the countries calling for it. But I guess we can end this episode by saying it's good that Hamas and Israel are talking about a hostage swap and a four-day truce, ceasefire, whatever you want to call it. So I'll keep you guys updated, but for now, that is what we know. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great night. Adios.